Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Welcome to episode nine of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy on the transition to a decarbonized economy. With me, as always, is Michaela Hall from Agora Energiewende and Jan Rosenau from the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hi, guys. How are you doing today? I'm still recovering from the first quarter of this year. Uh, There seems to be a never-ending stream of news um, in the energy sector, and I'm looking forward to my vacation next week, uh, which I think I deserve. (laughs) <laughs> we, sh- we are sure you do. I'm fine as well. I am not yet over the fact that we actually met in person. David and I met in person last week Very for the exciting. first time at the Solar Summit in Brussels. Absolutely, we did. Yeah, um, very exciting times. Um, I uh, chaired a panel with some uh, really interesting speakers, uh, CEO of Solar Power Europe, uh, uh, Francesca La Camera from uh, IRENA. So some really um, interesting people about the emerging markets and the solar um in the solar space. And uh, Michaela, you were part of a panel uh, discussing hydrogen. What a coincidence, isn't it? And now we are discussing hydrogen again. It's unavoidable these days. <laughs> it is. Well, as you say, yeah, the use of hydrogen in the energy mix has been a hot topic in the energy transition for several years now. Uh, and while there's been a lot of activity and money thrown at it, hydrogen's role in a decarbonized economy of the future has yet to be truly defined. It is a topic that creates strong views, as you will have heard in several of our previous podcasts. And today we hope to dig a little deeper into why it garners such passion among energy professionals and policymakers and what its place in a net zero world could be. Today, we are joined by Geneva Mia Fleece from Energy Revolution Ventures, who has previously worked alongside Michaela as project manager for hydrogen at Agora Energiewende, while also working in the past for Aurora Energy Research and Liebreich Associates. Thank you for joining us today, Geneva Mia. Hey, it's great to be here. So to start us off then, maybe you could give us a bit of background there. Why is hydrogen seen by some as the savior of the energy transition? Well, it is true that, um, yeah, a lot of people see hydrogen as the savior of the energy transition. I'm not sure savior is the right term, but it is a great complement to renewables. In fact, in some areas, renewables themselves, wind and solar or hydro, just cannot decarbonize certain sectors. This is particularly true for industrial uses of gases where hydrogen is used as a feedstock. So this excitement we're seeing on hydrogen is in part correct in that it will enable full decarbonization when coupled to the with renewables. But it is also exciting to see all the applications where hydrogen might um, I guess I guess I guess what I'm trying to say hydrogen is a great complement to renewables and that's why people are getting excited about about it it allows us to reach the places that renewables themselves cannot reach 
I want to ask a provocative question um, because some people would would say, you know, cynics would say, we've seen that before. You know, there was all this hype um, around fusion. There was a lot of hype around CCS and clean coal. Um, and now we talk about hydrogen. That's just going to blow over. And in five years, we talk about something else instead. What makes you kind of confident that um, hydrogen is there to stay in the debate and is, is actually going to play a significant role? And it's not just a hype cycle that we go through without, without, without any tangible results at the end. Yeah, certainly. There have been waves of hype around hydrogen before. And I think w one big reason why they flopped was because there wasn't a way to make hydrogen cheaply enough, um, i.e. you had to make it from either fossil fuels, and that, w that was always going to be more expensive than the underlying fossil fuel, in the absence of a carbon price uh, or an adequately high carbon price that just the economics just didn't make sense um, that was one factor the second factor was of course the chicken and egg problem there is no infrastructure so how will you refuel your hydrogen vehicles and nobody wanted to make the first move but today we have renewables that are starting to get insanely cheap and we have so much so mu so much of these this renewable energy that we don't know what to do with it it's 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 overloading the grid it's um it's being uh, it's leads to negative pricing and in these conditions renewable hydrogen that is f produced from electrolysis can thrive and can actually in some cases already today undercut fossil substitutes and this is a, only a trend that will get stronger going forward as we scale uh, electrolysis as the capital costs come down for these new technologies so yeah we've reached a turning point for hydrogen so we reached that turning point uh, now with you mean with the with the new geopolitical environment and the new cost situation or we reached that turning point also because renewables uh, record additions and uh, plummeting prices it's both together i think it, it, it's three things i mean so so there is definitely the renewables getting cheaper um, and then there is definitely the second point about electrolyzers getting cheaper. These two work in tandem. And then I think uh, it is important to acknowledge the recent situation. And, uh, you, you know, due to the invasion of Ukraine, uh, the, the fossil fuels are so expensive. That also changes the calculus in favor of green hydrogen, of course. Absolutely. Just quickly, uh, I'll jump in there. You mentioned green hydrogen. Could we possibly um, discuss what you mean by green hydrogen and, and the whole spectrum of different hydrogens that are, are referred to as different colors? Could we just quickly uh, run through them for our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there is a number of different colors that hydrogen is being referred to depending on which technology is used to produce the hydrogen. Commonly, green hydrogen refers to hydrogen produced through electrolysis using renewable energy sources. So that would be wind, solar. Uh, but I would also add hydro and uh, other renewable sources. Um, there is Next to that, there is blue hydrogen, which is hydrogen made from fossil fuels with carbon capture and storage. There is, a, there is a sister technology called turquoise hydrogen, which is also hydrogen made from fossil fuels uh, with carbon capture and storage. Now, the difference between blue and turquoise is the technology involved. Um, one blue hydrogen uses steam methane reforming, whilst turquoise hydrogen uses pyrolysis. 
It is, of course, possible to produce hydrogen without carbon capture and storage from fossil fuels, and that is how it is produ- produced in the majority of cases today. This is referred to as either gray hydrogen when it's used when it's made from fossil gas, or black hydrogen, or sometimes I've even heard brown hydrogen uh, when it's made from coal. Um, these, yeah, these these colors are you are used as a, as a shorthand, but. Um, I mean, I mean, when you think about it, yes, yeah, pain. There's, yeah, there's also pain. I like good pain. Point. I mean, as a color. <laughs> good, good point, Michaela. Uh, there is pink, but but I also re- heard pink hydrogen being referred to as purple hydrogen or as yellow hydrogen, which is hydrogen yeah. produced from nuclear power. So these colors are a little bit a little bit confusing, and I generally like to refer to them as um, as the by the underlying technology that's being used to produce this hydrogen. Uh, however, as you just caught me, um, I, I sometimes, you know, s- slide the slope of just using the shorthand green hydrogen. It's just sometimes, it's just convenient. You know, it's just <laughs> too convenient. Well, as long as you differentiate and say green hydrogen, and, and Emilio, before you spoke about hydrogen is here to stay, uh, I think it's important to say that basically, you know, if we talk in a context of getting rid of Russian gas, uh, to make sure the independence issue is only delivered by green hydrogen, not by hydrogen that uses fossil fuel as an input. Yeah, I think that is a good point. Um Hmm. On that, I would say, if you want to win yourself of Russian gas, green hydrogen has a massive role to play in Europe. And there is enormous potential for Europe to deploy more renewables and to push out Russian gas. There is also enormous potential for Europe to signal to the world that we want to get off Russian gas and promote projects all around the world which help substitute that Russian gas. If we were going to make hydrogen at scale from fossil gas, uh, I mean, I, I think the figures of the additional gas that you need to deliver the same amount of energy output, uh, and you might want to correct me here, but I think it's something about 30 or 40% additional gas that would be required to make the same amount of hydrogen that has the same um, energy uh, density as, as as fossil gas is 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 that right? Is that is that a, is that a fair sort of figure to use? Yeah, I would I would say the overall efficiency of the steam methane reforming process or, or pyrolysis, what I've seen, comes around to sixty between sixty and seventy percent. So uh, yes, that's 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 the ballpark figure. So you're basically putting in one unit of fossil gas and you're getting out 0.6 or 0.7 units of, of hydrogen that you can then use uh, in the applications where, where, where you see a major use case, which I think that's been one of the criticisms of, of, of um, blue hydrogen, hasn't it? That uh, it, yeah, it's, it's not as efficient as using fossil gas directly. And of course, with carbon capture, there might be lower emissions associated with it. But just the fact that it's, it's less efficient and you've got the upstream emissions, uh, that, that's, a, that's a problem, isn't it? Yeah, it is a problem, but upstream emissions is something that can be controlled, and we should be controlling it no matter what we're doing with the with this gas. I spoke at the Budapest Hydrogen Summit around three weeks ago or so, and there the mood was very much 
you know, given the current geopolitical situation, the mood was very much, look, green hydrogen is the only way to go. But there was quite a few representatives from the oil and gas industry there. And it's worth having a, a conversation with them because some of the projects, actually not some of the projects, there was just one exciting project that they told me about, but it was about getting gas in offshore fields in Romania, which intrinsically have very low r- rates of leakage. And there's also readily available CO2 storage in Romania. And there are people willing to do this. Um, yeah, there are people willing to do this. However, there is enormous problem with getting permitting done in Romania for renewables. Romania has good resources. They could they could be doing solar, but there is a lot of pushback against that. The regulatory environment is just not ready for, for that yet. So at least in this case the the company will will said look we're interested in green hydrogen but we will go we probably will go forward with this blue project and we are confident we can hit hit, hit these low leakage rates and which leads me to believe that we will we will still see some of these projects they will be in the minority to be sure everybody mo- most people believe in green believe green hydrogen is the way but i still think we will see some blue hydrogen projects even in europe until recently, green hydrogen, of course, was projected to be a lot more expensive, at least in the kind of near term. And are you saying that has fundamentally changed with you know, the rise in, in fossil gas prices uh, and the reduction we've seen in renewables? And, and, and if so, when, when do you think we could see kind of cost parity a, a, approaching between blue and green? Is that something that we, we can expect pretty soon or is that going to take a, quite a long time, you think? Yeah, there are two things to unpack here. There's the short-term view and the long-term view. I guess I'll start in the short with the short-term view. And yes, with given the recent events, we are seeing the timeline for competitiveness of green hydrogen being pushed massively forward. Green hydrogen today is competitive with other forms of uh, gas hydrogen, at least the gas-based hydrogen. Uh, in the long term, so so that's in the immediate term, the next uh, two to three to four years. But if you look at the forward curves and the forward curve pricing of gas, that curve starts to drop down in three four years, and and you can be sure that more supply will come online as a response to the current price signal. So. We're going to be in this funny situation where it's almost like a camel curve uh, or like, like a camelback, right? Where first uh, gas go, it goes up and then green hydrogen becomes more competitive. And then somewhere towards the end of the uh, second half of 2020s, we're going to see blue hydrogen becoming more competitive than green. And then once we go back into 2030s... Um, Green hydrogen, due to uh, economies of scale, becomes competitive again with blue. And and from 2030s onwards, that will probably th- that is going to stay. So, do you think uh, blue hydrogen, grey hydrogen, their days are numbered, or are they, will they stick around for uh, till the 2030s, 2050s? No, I think I think blue hydrogen will stick around. Uh, there are a few projects that are getting built or in advanced planning today, and these projects will stick around till the 2050s. It's hard to make a definite judgment on this issue because we, we you can't foresee how people will react to increasing amounts of renewables, and you we can, you can't foresee whether people will be how receptive 
people will be to increase circularity, whether we will be able to achieve the behavioral changes needed to reduce our consumption of, for example, plastics. So I reckon we will be realistically relying on fossil resources for quite some time going forward, uh, including in the production of, of hydrogen. But as an investor, I would say that green hydrogen is the one that makes most sense to me. Okay. And I remember as when you were not investor, but you were still with Agora drafting policy advice, that you were always very outspoken about uh, strict regulatory criteria that ought to be in place to frame blue hydrogen. And notably, I remember you saying that uh, they were much stricter than what the taxonomy, the famous EU taxonomy on sustainable finance had set out. So as a former regulator and maybe as, you know, from the view of an investor, what would What would this framing look like in terms of framing emissions and storage and capture rates? I mean, to, to me, it's clear that we need to use the best available technology. And um, there is a lot of conversation or I've seen a lot of views or statements being made around carbon capture and storage not working. But fact of the matter is most of the, or at least the most recent demonstration project by Shell has achieved exactly what it set out to do. Now, what we can do in regulatory terms is to push companies to do much more than that. Because Shell has demonstrated that carbon capture works. So, If it works, then then we then it has to meet certain standards. Now we, we the proof of concept is there. Okay, so now if you want want to do it commercially, you have to hit these best available targets. So if a company is claiming that they can, their technology can abate ninety five percent of emissions, then that's what we should hold them accountable to. That's what the regulator should ask for. Nothing less. Um, there is also, of course, the issue of methane emissions, and this this is a very big problem. And we've seen, I mean, re recent data, uh, satellite data shows that in in the U.S. in the Permian Basin, methane emissions have been vastly underestimated, and they have been the rates we've seen is something to the tune of nine percent. Um, so nine percent of all vented methane, of all extracted methane, is essentially let out in the atmosphere, and this is completely unacceptable. This this cannot happen. So when companies go out and make an alliance, the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, and say they are targeting voluntarily 0.2% leakage, the regulator needs to step in and take them into account. And the regulator should be explicit about that. Otherwise, it is just greenwashing by these companies. We, we've spoken about whether there's a role for production of hydrogen, but maybe we should touch on, on the uses of it. Where do you envisage hydrogen being used most uh, in, in, the, in a decarbonized economy? And what sort of applications Uh, are best suited? So hydrogen can be used in a wide array of applications. It can be used in essentially in any sector you can, or any application really that uses fossil fuels today. Um, the question is, should it? And I think the market already provides an answer to that. Um, Jan, you mentioned the Uh, the hypeways around hydrogen, the previous hypeways around hydrogen were all about hydrogen cars. But we've seen that 
hydrogen didn't really take off in cars. And I've touched upon the, the reasons why it didn't. It was the infrastructure. It was more expensive than fossils. But that fight has been sort of that fight has ended. We've said battery electric cars are the future of personal mobility. So the uses of hydrogens have sort of narrowed. And I reckon where we will see the most hydrogen is one industry where it is indispensable, where there are, where hydrogen is used as a, as a feedstock. So that is ammonia production, that is uh, direct uh, production of steel, and that is also production of a wide array of other chemicals. I reckon we're going to see some hydrogen in transport, particularly for for heavy um, or sort of long-distance transport in planes. Um, We're going to come back to planes later. But yes, we're going to see hydrogen in aviation. We're going to see hydrogen in shipping um, as part of synthetic fuels. We, We see Maersk already looking at replacing diesel with methanol for its ships and there's there's plenty of actors lining up to produce green hydrogen to make me- uh, methanol for uh, for these purposes and one other application sorry before before i uh, move on i, I reckon we're going to see some hydrogen in trucking as well now most trucks if you if you look at most projections uh, notably the iea most trucks will even heavy trucks will go um, will also use batteries, but I reckon there are, there are some niches in trucking, and a good example of that is the is the refueling network that's being established in Eastern Australia for that purpose. And there, finally, I guess the the one sector where which is the real wild card to me is the power sector, and you get the biggest variability across different scenarios across different forecasters and across different scenarios you get the widest variability in this particular sector some scenarios don't see a role for hydrogen at all this they say this will all be done with advanced geothermal with advanced nuclear with redox flow batteries or some are even using a new lithium-ion batteries or lithium-based batteries and some and other scenarios see a huge role for hydrogen, and that is that is a huge wildcard to me. Um, but I would bet my money on that. So you're saying that there could be a significant use of uh, hydrogen in the power sector um, going forward, even though there is disagreement at the moment between different studies. Is that what you're saying? Is that primarily as uh, acting as storage uh, and long-term storage, or actually just direct uh, into the power sector? No, it doesn't make sense to put it directly in the power. So if you're using it, if you want to use it directly, then it makes far more sense to just use power at the top. Oh, sorry, the renewable power and feed it straight into the grid. Um, no, hydrogen in the power sector, and that's a really good point. Hydrogen is a storage technology. It allows you to balance um, particularly long-term, longer-term fluctuations. Uh, yeah, and I know you'll be excited to say uh, Geneva Mir hasn't mentioned heating in that. Um, in that list of applications, very exciting. I mean, I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a critic of using hydrogen for for heating um, for so many reasons. But and I'm, I'm keeping a, a running tally of, of of studies, independent studies that have not been commissioned by any industry groups, um, including the likes of the IEA, the IPCC, uh, IRENA, and many others. 
uh, actually also two Agora studies, one of which you led. Um, and they all seem to agree that using hydrogen in heating is, is at best a niche application, you know, maybe in a district heating network um, that could be, or in specific locations where you already have widespread industrial use of hydrogen, but um, really not at scale. And some studies even exclude it entirely. Um, um, and yeah, I'm curious to hear what you make of my view, which is that hydrogen used for heating really um, is, is very similar to the story we've heard uh, with you know, hydrogen cars, which were hyped a lot and never took off. I mean, I, I know you always show this this graph that I think Mike Liebreich put together first, where you see the sales figures of electric vehicles and they kind of go up on an exponential curve. And then you see, or you don't see actually, because the line is so so low on the graph, you see the sales figures for hydrogen vehicles and you can barely see it. Um, so I think we see the same for heating, but I'm interested in, in your, your take, whether you're maybe a bit more optimistic than I am. Yeah, that's that's a really difficult uh, issue to unpack, Jan. And um, in the 12 Insights on Hydrogen, which I offered, we made a strong case for heat pumps being the better deal for the consumer, but also the better deal the better deal for yeah the better deal for the consumer and the better use of taxpayers' money. We received some pushback from from uh, utilities and from actually asset owners gas asset owners on, on this issue and we've we've had some interesting conversation with these parties and wh- whilst i do stand by what i said uh, that heat pumps are the best deal for the consumers and they are the best deal for the climate long term I, I reckon there will be some pockets where there will be hydrogen heating and yeah, these things will just happen uh, be, be, for for different reasons. You might have you might have a, a commune that this for behaviorally just decides to go that way. You know, the the way um, the way one of these guys uh, representatives put it to me is: when do you switch your heating system? Right when it breaks. Uh, so so there is a agent problem there to be, or is a, rather an incentive problem there. And there are many things that are standing in the way of wider heat pump deployment that don't necessarily reflect the same uh, electric vehicle story. You know, the, the mass manufacturing of batteries versus the mass manufacturing of heat pumps. But actually, you know, that that can be approximated. What cannot be approximated is the installers and that each house is different. You can mass manufacture cars, but it's very difficult to sort of apply the same heat pump to every house because it is a completely new system. So you have, uh, add to that financing issues, um, you know, people are quite uh, familiar with leasing models, etc. But for heat pumps, this sort of heating as a service or cooling even as a service has is not a fully developed model. I think there are more challenges to to in the heating sector for direct electrification to have a sort of higher dominance than in the EV sector, which is why I reckon that we will see some pockets where hydrogen is used in heating but again this will be a very niche solution for yeah hmm. i'm not so sure so you say post our commitment to phase out russian gas as soon as possible and hey we all want to see that actually happen because nothing would be more embarrassing now 
you'd say we could still allow ourselves in Europe to have a few communes that just decide we want hydrogen because it's not only that the heating per se is will be more expensive, but doesn't it also come with the infrastructure that needs to come with it? I mean, you know, like if you look in, in the Netherlands at the moment, what they do, they disconnect vast parts of the grid because they are no longer supplied from the grid, but go to heat pumps. But if you want to keep the opt the menu open for every commune in Europe, from an infrastructure point of view, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. No, I think you're right, Michaela. And uh, you've touched upon a very important distinction here. Um, I mean, I'm currently sitting in the UK. And in the UK, uh, I, I reckon the, the actors with... Uh, interests in keeping the old infrastructure have the conversation is a little bit different because of the energy performance of the housing stock in europe actually quite a lot of housing stock is well insulated um and and it's just more amenable say so to speak to heat pumps so in the uk definitely the, the hydrogen story is in heating is a little bit ahead of the story in Europe, I would say. But I, st I still reckon you will see, you know, if you if you have a building that's being built today, and unless you mandate that all new buildings have to be built with heat pumps, some will choose boilers and some will put hydrogen compliant pipes in their buildings. And 10, 15 years down the line, they, they will, they might decide, well, it's easier to just switch to a hydrogen uh, fired boiler than it is to totally renovate this building. So there is some element of lock-in that's being built already today. And which which is why if, you know, you, you come to, if somebody is mandated, uh, an asset owner is mandated to change their entire asset, to switch over their entire asset to, to be net zero compliant, they don't care about the operating costs of the, if these bills, bills are going for on the renters. So... That's the problem that you need to solve. And I reckon that's why it's so much more challenging than the EV story. There's a risk, though, isn't there, that if if we kind of have an expectation that in some areas there might be hydrogen at some point, that because we don't know, that uncertainty actually leads to delay because we need to yeah that's always the story isn't it oh, we need to wait and see we don't know yet we need to keep all the options on the table i don't know how many times i've heard this and technology neutral. technology neutrality and 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 yeah and, and there, there are some good reasons for that but i think there are also real risks um and that this is used deliberately as a delay tactic that you say oh we can't make decisions we can't actually champion a specific technology we should leave everything on the table and then nothing happens um when that clearly is not a good option so um one of the things that really concerns me when i when i hear hydrogen ready uh, you know that term it reminds me of ccs ready we build new coal power stations and i think the only requirement was that they needed to be CCS ready, having enough outside space to um, hypothetically at some point you know, fit a CCS facility. And that could be your car park, and then you would be a CCS ready coal fire plant. And uh, of course, we only have one single uh, power station that um, has CCS that commercially operates and uses coal in the world, and that's in, in, in Canada. Um, so I'm, I'm just very, very skeptical as to whether keeping 
everything on the table in terms of options is is the right approach or whether we need to go much harder for the things we know work in in the areas where we know they do well i would say it's always i think you're right jan no absolutely absolutely there is a hazard and you, you've put it beautifully um the analogy of ccs ready well how how much how much ccs and coal power plants are we seeing today or or, or other plants um it is problematic, but on the other hand, keeping optionality open is is just is just smart way to minimize risk. Now, the way to deal with the problem of of whether a thing, something is hydrogen ready or not is to have a formal scheme to evaluate it. We cannot allow people to we cannot yeah we cannot invite, allow people to just say they will be ready. No, there needs to be a formal certification scheme for that, and and that is somewhere where the regulator. Um, that is an opportunity for the leg- regulator to step in, and uh, and not just actually this is not just an opportunity for, you for the le- regulator. This is an opportunity for the engineering firms uh, out there, and they are they are already doing this. Um, but the regulator should be a little bit tougher about allowing what it, what is being labeled as CCS ready and um, what is not. There should be clear guidelines. Oh, CCS, sorry, hydrogen. <laughs> Which we don't have at the moment, which we don't, frankly, we don't have at the moment. These terms are used as far as I know, say, for example, in taxonomy, but also in various EU, EU budgets, they yeah. use these terms. Yeah, there should be some meat on the bone. Right? At the defined. moment, it's all bone. So, regulator, do your job. <laughs> Hi, everyone. David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29, Euros, where you can access our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to our conversation. Um, you've touched on the kind of gas infrastructure uh, there and how do we get that hydrogen uh, to where it needs to be used Um, and there's a lot of discussion of producing hydrogen on site for heavy industry and um, there's also discussions about how Europe could perhaps use Australia as its um, hub for green hydrogen and transporting you know the the solar powered generated um, hydrogen from there uh, out back all the way to Europe. Can we use the existing gas infrastructure that we use today um, on natural gas uh, for hydrogen gas? Jeez, that's that, that's a difficult one. You know, people have written entire reports on this, um, books almost. <laughs> well, you've got three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, short short answer is in some places. There are it, it, there are so many different factors that come into this, and it's not it's it, it is about the steel used in pipes. It is about the yeah. It, a lot of it comes down to the materials that the pipes have been built. Some require complete um, so, complete replacement. Some can be repurposed, and but even those pipes that are repurposed will need. More will need more attention from the operations and um, maintenance perspective. So there will be a little bit more expensive, but in principle, it is feasible. Yes, um, I, th- I think 
the problem is focusing too much on the pipeline. We, there was we've had a lot of discussion about repurposing pipelines, and there have been a lot of very high-profile purchases by, notably Macquarie, of nat- natural gas transmission systems. Um, the problem with this is that these things won't be ready uh, by 2030. Probably, maybe 2035, and. Yeah, these things won't, just won't be won't be ready. So, so, so we're talking about things that you know, and, and the picture might change in the next five years drastically. What what if we do? What if we are successful at rolling many more heat pumps than we've anticipated? What if what if we what if industry migrates to other countries um, down south where electricity is cheaper? Then there is far less gas demand, and then maybe you don't even need the pipelines. So. Yeah, the the discussion about pipelines ha, ha, was very high profile, and everybody was discu- discussing it. And it's good to have a plan, but how things will turn out? I mean, it's very hard to evaluate on this, uh, on such long time horizons. Yeah, I would also agree that uh, around how the molecule molecules market evolves is a lot of uncertainty in like for the EU specifically, but I guess for the whole world. But recently we had uh, a lot of, I guess the old reflexes die hard. So, you know, when uh, the Ukraine invasion happened, uh, instantly the reflex was, whoa, now we need more LNG terminals and more pipelines that connect them. And so you're in London now, but in Brussels, um, there was the, it, it, people were were basically claiming uh, that an LNG terminal could be converted relatively easily easily at some point to a station that receives ammonia or hydrogen. Can you explain technically if that is feasible at all? Yeah. So there. Are- I mean, so, so there are two things to unpack here. One is conver- conversion of LNG terminals to ammonia. And w- the other is the conversion of LNG terminals to accept liquid hydrogen. And we, we are talking about, by the way, this is we're talking now about the um, reception terminals, not the import terminals. So let's start with liquid hydrogen. I mean, theoretically... I reckon I think it could be done if you if you if you took all the smartest engineers and you and you and you said convert this LNG terminal into a liquid hydrogen terminal it could be done the issue is at what cost and the cost would be substantial it would be practically comparable to building a new LNG terminal and that is because everything in a in an LNG terminal is designed to handle LNG. Whereas liquid hydrogen is to 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 liquefy hydrogen, you need to go 100 degrees Kelvin lower. So necessarily, all the materials, all the seals, all the pipes need to be fun. So so in LNG terminals, you can you have pipes, but converting these pipes to accept liquid hydrogen means adding a vacuum layer outside the pipe. Otherwise. Otherwise, the coldness of the liquid hydrogen actually liquefies the air around it, and you don't want that. Next to that, you also have to you would also have to replace all the pipes, all the boil of gas compression equipment, and the recondenser, and uh, yeah, <laughs> essentially you need to replace 
most of your infra, uh, most of your infrastructure. It sounds like the equivalent of a very deep renovation for a house. But okay. Yeah, uh, no, precisely it is, and and I'm glad you mentioned that because deep renovation of a house also includes a new layer of insulation, and the most expensive part of the LNG terminal is actually the LNG storage tank. But such a storage tank would not be suitable to handle liquid hydrogen. You would need to place a tank, another tank inside of it, so you can have a vacuum insulated, or use some membranes to insulate it. And that is the equivalent of, of putting s several layers of insulation around on the inside of your house. So you're able to store less hydrogen than LNG, and you have to pay for essentially a brand new tank. It's, for all intents and its purposes, it's like building a new, completely new terminal. Now, the story changes a little bit, or actually the story changes quite substantially with ammonia. In ammonia, you also need to change the compressors. The, the, you, have to, you have to change the compressors, the recondensers, the pumps, the flaring equipment. Um, but the pipes, not necessarily, because what you have to watch out for is, that, is how your structure uh, this, the sort of the stress of your structure and whether the pipes can handle the additional weight because ammonia is more dense than LNG. So you have to watch out for that, but but this has to be evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis. But the biggest sort of difference to liquid hydrogen um, comes in the form of the storage tank. That doesn't need to be that doesn't need to be drastically insulated for ammonia because ammonia's boiling point is at minus 33 degrees Celsius versus LNG's boiling point, which is minus 160 or so. So that's, that tank is fine. And that tank by far accounts for 50%, 60% of the cost of, of a terminal. So overall, um, I've seen studies which point to that LNG terminals can be converted to ammonia terminals at an extra 20% premium, maybe. There needs to, there needs a lot needs to happen um, to do that. But the, in terms of pure cost, it's not that much. We want to. I just want to move on a little bit from there. And we've you've mentioned how heavy industry are going to be a, a key user of uh, hydrogen in, in the future. How do we help? transition those companies and those um, processes into using green hydrogen? And, and, and can we accelerate that at all? Yeah, we can. Um, we can provide targets to support, targeted support for these companies. One of the, I, rec I think one of the risks these companies fear is getting into contracts, 10-year contracts with hydrogen suppliers at a high price point of hydrogen when we know that in this decade, the costs of renewable hydrogen will drop sub substantially. Um, I project myself that by 2030, hydrogen, re renewable hydrogen will be 80% um, of cost of what it was in 2020. So de-risking long-term long offtake agreements um, is one way to do it. Another way to do it is to just subsidize new equipment, reward the first movers in this industry. And the third element that we can do to, to promote this is to put in place the right conditions for for power prices to for low power prices to supply uh, to supply to these electrolyzers to produce this green hydrogen. Mm. So you you reckon it can go a lot faster now? 
because that's what the commission announced in its, in its repower EU communication. They doubled the ambition again for green hydrogen in the light of the Ukraine crisis, crisis war. Um, do you think it can go this fast? I, I, it, it, hmm, there's potential. There's potential there to go this fast. The, the, the price point has definitely changed. And I reckon more projects are in the money today than were in the money one year ago. And that's not even counting subsidies. Um, what I see as the major obstacle to reaching that target is the permitting around renewables. The, the process is far too complicated. And, and that is actually the main bottleneck. Yeah, that's an important uh, topic. And I know that's something you touched on it on your panel last week, uh, Michaela, the, the, the idea about or the discussion around additionality uh, of renewables to help encourage uh, green hydrogen. Is that an important element of how green hydrogen market will develop? Yeah, the discussion uh, about additionality. My view is that additionality is important. We need to we need to be precise in our definition of what is counted as renewable hydrogen. The issue I have with additionality is it is a little bit complicated. Well, I and from what I remember, the discussion was that you basically regulate at the project basis, you know, and and this inherently sometimes does not fit every project in the same way. Um, but I would say that in a post-Ukraine context, the issues have not gone away. And, you know, for example, these rules, uh, so there's the rules that there should be additional renewables that feeds the electrolyzer. Hardly anyone disagrees. But there are these rules on how the electrolyzer integrates into the system and when does it use it. And, well, if we want to decarbonize, then in the power, the gas is the peak in order to reduce the pressure on the peak to have the gas where we really need it. I guess an electrolyzer has to be system intelligent to a certain way. Yeah, that that is true. That is true. The, one of the issues, however, I see is the, is this you know this element of grid connection and allowing to draw power from the grid at particular um, yeah. at particular times. I don't quite understand why there is so much pushback against uh, against coupling it uh, in short time intervals to and allowing the electrolyzers to to mm. draw power from. Um, when the grid is is at a low power price, which means that it is running effectively off renewable energy, so there is a lot of pushback yeah. within the industry for that particular criterion. Yeah. But I don't quite understand why we 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 do have the software technologies. Um, I guess no, I guess that's the point. We don't have the software technologies for that, and this is an opportunity for new founders to develop that software uh, because the big companies are saying, "Look, we we don't have this capability." today we don't know how to match um we're not capable of mm. matching the 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 at, at such short time intervals the power price and, and the grid intensity to be compliant with additionality rules so there is definitely an opportunity there to to be seized for good software founders to get into that topic and solve this problem i'm glad you say it because it comes back also to our podcast episode with greg who said 
it's funny that, you know, in every other sector, you had logistics being revolutionized by digital solutions. But in the en- energy sector, we always come back with the, oh, that's, that we cannot do. That we cannot do. That we cannot do. Like, like you say, I would imagine, I'm really not an expert in this at all, but I would imagine there has to, there could, should be some solution that makes this possible that you know what you consume and uh, what, what its uh, qualities are in terms of GHG emission, more or less real time, as we have done in other areas of the economy. Yeah, now, I re- I reckon the only, I mean, in Europe, quite easily, the the problem becomes once you start uh, considering exports from abroad uh, or other imports imports from abroad uh, from outside of Europe, where the the electricity system just doesn't, the electricity market uh, is not like it is in Europe. So that is a touchy touchy issue, right? And if you do want to unlock this global pool of hydrogen resources or, or global, I would even call it renewable resources. How do you design a non-discriminatory system? Um, so, I mean, one of the ways to do this, it would be to to put the rules in place or rather draft the rules and give everybody a lot of time to be compliant with them and sort of in the short term say, um, and this is, I guess, the position of hydrogen, hydrogen Europe, that in the short term, just relax these rules, let people deploy these things, see how they work in practice, and then you can start deploying software on that rather than designing theoretical software and uh, for theoretical projects and then you know something doesn't work boom uh, you, you know you don't want to invest again because you, you see too much risk in developing things that you cannot deploy uh, because you're you don't understand the regulation full well so I think there is um, I mean you know there, there's of course the danger in the short term that if you if you if you deploy projects without stronger additionality compliance in the short term that you're gonna end up doing more harm than good with electrolyzers and i think that's true and i i absolutely agree i think it is true that you will end up uh in sort of even increasing your total stock of emissions um but i feel like with these things it's also true that you have to just go for it try and additionality yes super important um to ensure the green property of hydrogen um but there should be some sort of short-term grace period for it we're coming to the end of our time together sadly we're gonna have to um move on i just wanted i have one more one last question for you do you see hydrogen and green hydrogen um the future of the industry relying on hydrogen in itself or is it going to be used as like a base fuel for other uh for other chemicals Uh, we mentioned ammonia and methanol in today's conversation is it going to be used as hydrogen or is it going to be to other chemistries and other power techs, gases um, have greater potential? I think it will be all of the above. There will be applications where it makes more sense to use hydrogen on the spot. Um, perhaps, yeah, uh, there will be applications where it makes, which it's all about fitting the application or hitting the requirements of the application you are using. So if you need high volumetric density, it will be some sort of synthetic fuel. If, if, if you're not that much concerned about um, volumetric density, if you're more concerned about your total efficiency of uh, total efficiency, then it might be easier to just 
have that hydrogen stay in the form of hydrogen. So it, it all really depends on the application that you're using it for. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, lastly, before we go, um, one thing we ask all of our guests is if, if they could look into a crystal ball, what does the energy landscape look like in 10 or 20 years time? Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more green ammonia over this decade. We're going to we're going to see a lot more synthetic fuels. Um I actually I believe that green chemicals that the hydrogen, renewable hydrogen, decarbonized hydrogen will enable a boom in green chemicals this decade. So that's something I'm looking for. And I think we're going to see a lot more decentralization thanks to green hydrogen. We're going to see these uh, little communes, not necessarily feeding hydrogen for heating. I think that these will be using hydrogen to sort of go off grid in times of peak power prices and have high uh, electrolyzers coupled with on-site storage, you know, a couple of megawatt hours uh, and then coupled to a fuel cell um, in a decentralized fashion. So these will start to spring up, I reckon, around 2025. We're going to see also um, the first hydrogen giga projects, hopefully, uh, in the second half of this decade. And uh, these giga projects will be feeding uh, the global green uh, chemical supply. That's fascinating. Thank you, Geneva uh, Mir. Um, before we go, uh, if we could quickly go around uh, the table uh, and see what caught my eye this week. Um, Jan, should we begin with you? Uh, what caught your eye this week? Well, I must say it's the IPCC report, and I'm sorry. I, I assume that uh, both um, Yumi and Michaela had the same idea, um, but that um, that really caught my eye, and uh, I haven't read it yet. It's, it's almost 3,000 pages, um, and I haven't been able to digest that fully, but there's there's a lot of very detailed analysis in 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 that report uh, and i think we will just find out over the coming weeks what's actually in it um, it's it's very dense and uh, um yeah if you haven't seen it um have a look it's on the ipcc website there's a there's a summary for policymakers if you don't have time to read 3000 pages Jan, please don't tell me that you read thousands of pages for part one and two of this IPCC report. No, I, I searched for specific terms in the report, I must admit. So I have been deep in it, but I haven't read it all. Okay. I'm reassured. Well, for me, it was also the IPCC report. And if I may extend, it was the speech that Gutierrez also gave when presenting it. And I believe I'm quoting him here for the second time already. Yes, I do in our podcast series. Uh, is he paying me for doing that? No, he doesn't. No, it was, he did not mince his words huh? um, when he presented it uh, and really said like, so far this has been a file of, of broken promises and uh, um, high emitting governments and corporations do one announce one thing and then do the other and that is equivalent to a lie like really strong 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 words and basically it's also interesting just to read this IPCC report in parallel while in Brussels discussions are going on on you know how how do we get out of this double climate change and Russia dependency um, and you and you still see the the disconnect between what science says, like for example, this report says, okay, massive wind and solar and agriculture, like a lot in the agriculture sector, and then what we actually propose uh, in short term remedy is very much 
always going into the opposite direction. No? So like maybe, you know, relieving food crisis, turning uh, back uh, land that was already left for storage. It's actually exactly the opposite of what this report proposes. So, yeah, but definitely this week's highlight, yeah. Geneva mm. uh, Mir, what caught your eye? Yeah, I'll sound off a bit of a bit of a different note. Uh, to me, it was I saw saw an article about GTL. Um, I forget what the acronym stands for, but it's a company that produces composite tanks. And there was a photo of uh, I think one of the founders. Ah, that wasn't your tweet. You tweeted about yeah, it. Yeah, I I can't stop thinking about it. The guy was holding a, a composite tank that's meant to hold uh, 150 kilos of liquid hydrogen. The tank itself only weighs 12 kilos. It was I was just I was just so surprised that we can, uh, you know, the the advancement, uh, the advances in novel materials, and how we innovate our ways when the right signals are given. When Airbus said, "Look, we want to produce hydrogen-fueled aircraft," some people got working like we're going to produce a. Uh, they probably were already working on these things, but they said, "Look, now we're going to show off the world that this can be done." And the reason why this fascinates me is because I gave hydrogen, liquid hydrogen aviation zero chance um, approximately a year ago of happening. So th that's something mm. I had to backtrack on. And that's something I'm following with great interest. Wow. Yeah, really interesting. So these tanks are to be used as, as fuel tanks in aircraft? Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah, correct. Wow. Really interesting. Yeah. Uh, finally, then from me, uh, the, what caught my eye was uh, the GWEC annual report, uh, the Global Wind Report for 2022, uh, and particularly the um, installation gap uh, that they predict. Uh, so last year, there was 93.6 gigawatts of new installations of, of wind power uh, around the world. Uh, but by the end of the decade, that needs to reach 400 gigawatts. It needs to quadruple by the end of the decade uh, in order to stay within the 1.5 degree uh, pathway which um, I think shows the ambition of the industry, but also um, just how much work needs to be done. GWEC do put forward a number of potential ways that they could help achieve this, including upgrades to grid infrastructure, um, closer collaboration across the whole energy structure, uh, uh, sorry, across the whole energy sector, um, market design, which we've discussed before in a previous episode uh, as well, and easier permitting regimes for wind projects to help do that. Uh, sadly, that is all time we have uh, Sadly, that is all we have time for this week. My thanks to Geneva, Mir, Jan, and Michaela. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we have said on today's podcast or have an idea for what we should discuss next, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Uh, Geneva, Mir? I'm at Gniewczanko. I'll let you figure out how to spell that one out. <laughs> we'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, Michaela? <laughs> at CitizenSane1. And Jan? At Jan Rosenau. You can also tweet the show at WhatMattersPod or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you again very soon.